welcome back to the Finding Home podcast, the place where, as you know, I say home is more than just the sticks and the brick that you live in. It's just an ongoing conversation about life here in Utah, specifically along the Wasatch Front, and random stuff I want to talk about. So thank you so much for tuning in and listening. The podcast has seen some really cool growth just in the last month, so I appreciate those of you who are listening, those of you who are sharing it with uh, your friends. My name is Keith Callister. I'm your host. Today, I have an interview with a good friend of mine, Jerry Hardesty. Jerry is an artist. He is a member of the local art community here in the Salt Lake area, and he does abstract expressionism. And the thing I love about Jerry's art mostly is just that it's the first abstract art that I ever really connected with. I never understood or got abstract art up until I saw Jerry's work. Jerry is a super entertaining guy. I think you'll enjoy it. We'll put some pictures of the art that we mention on the website so that you can see his process and see exactly what I'm talking about when I say there is art out there that moves me. So without any further delay, here is my interview with Jerry Hardesty. Like I'm a real estate guy, but I don't want, nobody wants to listen to a podcast about real estate, right? Nobody finds that as, well, only real estate people do. You know, people will want to hear a little bit of what's going on, mm-hmm. but the intricacies of that industry, it's kind of boring. Thanks for coming on, though. I appreciate hey, it. My pleasure. I tend to say the same thing as we start these. I get the feeling sometimes that I just kind of know all the best people. Well, thank you <laughs> for including me in that group. Because uh, <laughs> people have been willing to come on and talk about what they're doing, whether it's a project or whether it's their work or, or whether it's art, so, such as yourself. And I increasingly realize that I have a lot of very interesting friends who are willing to help out. Thank you. My pleasure. So thanks for coming on. Or as I said before, ostensibly, this is a podcast about living in Utah and specifically along the Wasatch Front. Sometimes we get off of that particular topic, but the idea being that nobody lands here and stays on accident. There's reasons that people come here and reasons that people end up here now, whether they were born here, whether they are a transplant. So to start off, why don't you go ahead and tell us your, your Utah story, essentially. My Utah. How did you end up here? Well, first of all, uh, prior to moving here, I was living in Omaha and working for Union Pacific Railroad at their headquarters. During that time, we had a staff meeting here in Salt Lake City. When I was at the airport leaving the city, I told a coworker, I said, well, I never want to move here. Well, guess what? Famous last words. It was shortly after that, in fact, on my flight home, I had a layover in Denver, and there was a Union Pacific worker from a previous life who, he he was in Texas when I was uh, headquartered in Louisiana, and he knew my work very well, and I told him that I would like to apply for a position that I knew he had open as manager of public safety for Union Pacific Railroad. That was like on a Friday. The next morning on Saturday, he called me and offered me the job. And I said, oh, I don't know about that (laughs) because it's in Salt Lake City. And he wanted to know my reasons, and I stated my reasons why I was skeptical about accepting it. Well, he said, well, do some research and see if you can't figure it out. And, of course, part of that was convincing my wife for us to move to Salt Lake City when our older son had just moved back to Omaha after having been in the service for four years. So we had some challenges. Well, I did convince her, and and I was transferred here. We moved here in 1994. We've been here ever since. We actually raised our youngest son here, who is now married and lives here, and uh, he's on his own, has his own career and so forth, and doing quite well. 
I had a nine-state territory while I was working and living here, which was pretty stressful because I would fly out on a Monday morning and not fly back to Friday night. And this happened every single week of my life for like 14 years. So it was pretty stressful. And finally, in 2006, on a trip to Sacramento, I had two strokes and two heart attacks. Actually, I had a, a mini stroke on the airplane flying into Sa Sacramento, but I didn't know it until I picked up a rental car, met a coworker, and on the way to wherever we were going, I pretty much lost my voice and realized that something was going on. So from Sacramento, I called my doctor here, make an appointment to see him on, that was on a Monday, and make an appointment to see him on a Wednesday. I go in to see him on Wednesday, and he makes arrangements for me to have some tests on Thursday of the same week. But Wednesday night of that night, I had a major stroke. Well, that ended my career because I could no longer work and I didn't really want to work anymore. <laughs> but uh, I had to, I walked with a cane. I had to learn to walk over and I had to learn to talk again. And, and I had some cognitive issues that have since pretty much cleared up. I had a wonderful team of doctors and started with a wonderful team of doctors and, and they varied from there. I uh, I got a pacemaker and a defibrillator in late 2006, and then from there, we stayed here, and our older son, or our younger son, had, like I say, he grew up here, and then he went off to, about the time I had the, the major strokes in 2006, he went off to the Art Institute of Seattle to get a degree in audio production, and he did that, so, but then he moved back after that, and, and married, and so forth. Right after that, or after my health failure in 2006. I was extremely depressed, as you might imagine, because you go from being extremely busy to nothingness. And my youngest son said, Dad, you need to take up your art again to combat your depression, which I did, and it's helped tremendously. And I actually started painting in this, uh, I don't want to tell my age. Okay, well, you started painting earlier in life. Thank you. There we go. <laughs> and then yes. stopped. I started to, painting earlier in yeah. life when I was a teacher. Mm -hmm. In fact, at that time, we lived in Northeast Missouri. I taught band and vocal music. And I reached a point where I hated that. So I had to get out of that, that career. But anyway, while I was... Hold, hold, hold on real quick. What happens in being a, a band or a choir teacher that makes you hate to do that? The salary, just the, sal the, salary the salary at that time. I, I taught for 13 years. Yeah, I, I know you taught for, for quite a while. Did 13? you find the process of teaching to be fulfilling, just not to financially a degree. so? To a, to okay. a degree, it was fulfilling. But I reached a point in my career where I knew I needed to probably get a master's degree, and I just could not see my way to do it because I would not get that much more salary after having gotten a master's, I taught for 13 years and was only making 13000 a year. Come on, you can't support a family on 13000 a year. No. Even though at that time, the cost of living was quite a bit less than it is now. But anyway, I started painting at that time. It was kind of an outlet for me. Mm. And I started oil painting. Mostly, I painted clowns and still lifes, mm -hmm. landscapes, those kinds of paintings. And I did it in oil. And the only place I had to paint... Room I had to paint was to use a tabletop easel underneath of a desk in my house. So, mm -hmm. you know, I wanted to do it pretty bad. Uh, back to 2006, my son says, get back to painting. So I got back to painting, and I've pretty much made a career uh, out of it. When somebody says, are you retired? I say semi-retired, because yes, I am semi-retired. I don't have to do it, but if I don't do it almost every day, I get depressed again. 
So mm. I do it. Uh, a little over a year ago, I had open heart surgery because I had a blocked artery. So I, they did a bypass and then I had a bicuspid aortic valve which means a heart murmur, which I was born with. So I'd have the valve replaced with a pig's valve. And then I had an aortic aneurysm. So I feel lucky to be alive. Very lucky to be alive. You've brushed up there with death a couple of times. I'm like a, I'm like a cat with nine lives. So you got seven, seven to go? Or do you have uh, other... Uh... Six, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Who's counting? My team of doctors said they'll, they'll give me 20 more years. So... Well, yeah, I... 20 more years, you take it. I'll take it. You got it. So you're still here in Utah. And you, you've been here 23 years. 23 years. What is it that keeps you here? What do you, what do you still like about living here? Because as you said, you had some concerns about moving here in the first place. You said, man, I'd never want to live there back in the, the mid-90s. What have you found now in terms of living here versus your expectation of living here? Well, first, let me say one thing that is not keeping me here. And that's the politics. <laughs> anyway, God. what's keeping me here? Number one, I can't convince my wife to move yet. Number two, since our son, our youngest son lives here, and he considers my wife and I to be his only family other than his, his wife, mm-hmm. because there's such an age difference between our older kids and him that we're pretty much his only family. So he's kind of keeping us here. Although he's always, he's, he's given us permission to move. Oh. And then number three is I have a fantastic team of doctors. I do not know if I could establish that kind of relationship with doctors in other parts of the country. Hmm. I've asked my present doctors if they would recommend a place in the Midwest. And I've gotten a couple of different answers, one of them being... Kansas City, and I forgot what the other one was. Oh, it was Milwaukee or up mm. north where it's really cold, and I said, forget that. <laughs> so those three things, I, I would say, are, are key. Oh, and the fourth thing is Salt Lake City has a very vibrant art community. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that my style is the accepted norm. Like the representative style of that group? yeah. Because most of the artists here are landscape artists. Uh-huh. I tried that when I took up painting again in 2006. I got extremely bored with it, and I knew I had to change. So I changed to abstract, and I've never looked back. Okay, what, uh, what made you decide to go with abstract over landscapes? Or not landscapes? Or, or not landscapes. What made you go, like, you're doing landscapes, they're boring to you. I thought, doing landscapes, I thought it's painting the same damn tree over and over. <laughs> so what, or the, the same mountains. And you know, there's a big market in this area for landscapes. People want to see the mountains. Okay, mm-hmm. I understand that. People want to see red rock paintings. I understand that as well. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to do them. No. So what was it that, that pointed you towards abstract? Because like abstract expressionism and landscapes are fairly far apart in terms of the technique and and everything as as it goes. So With abstract expressionism, you can express your innermost feelings. And I like to say that I paint my soul. Mm -hmm. I bear my soul uh, on the canvas. So I can look at an abstract, say that's not my own, Mm -hmm. and I can get extremely excited because it's emotional and I can feel the emotions that the artist puts into into each painting. So, So that's what attracted me to it. And I wanted to be expressive like that. And I think I'm accomplishing that in my art. Maybe others don't think so, but I think I am. I know for me, 
of course, and I've told you this before, I never got abstract art prior to meeting you and, and seeing your art. And I think a lot of that had to do with, um, I saw you do a live painting once and it changed the way that I thought about it in terms, again, in terms of technique and the skill that goes into to taking that emotion and creating that in such a way that's not, here's a face and here's a body and here's the hand and that sort of a thing. There's a rawness to it that I never really fully appreciated. And I've been able to appreciate other abstract arts since, but yours was kind of like the gateway drug of art. Well, I'm glad I was able to accomplish <laughs> that. I really am. Most people who don't understand abstract art just think that all abstract artists are like Jackson Pollock, mm -hmm. who slung paint and dripped paint at canvases, and just splash paint. There's a whole lot more to it than that. Part of that still happens, mm -hmm. but not totally. Artists are more introspective, intuitive. I paint by intuition. Mm. I, I like to compare abstract art to jazz, which is also misunderstood mm -hmm. by lay by, by, yeah, by the wide majority of... Right, right. So, with that in mind, even though there's a vibrant artist community here in, in Salt Lake City, in Utah, there's not a big market for abstract. I'm going to say that abstract art may be 5% of, or even if maybe not even that high, of the art that's produced here. And most of the collectors are looking, are the other 95% looking for those red rock landscapes and the mountain landscapes and those kinds of things. Which, I mean, I'm with you on that. I, well, I, I appreciate the talent that goes into a decent landscape. Yeah, you have to appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, I, I you appreciate really the, do. the skill. And I guess I just kind of live on the inverse now because I appreciate the skill that goes into a landscape, but I, it's, it's boring to me as well. Like, I can look at it for half a second and be like, and there's Delicate Arch or there's you know, Lone Peak or whatever it might be, right? And with and as I've gotten to know you and, and started to kind of open my brain up to the other possibilities, I you know, I I guess I could say I respected the skills that went to abstract expressionism, but not really because I didn't understand them. But now I can stand and look at a, a piece of abstract art and really try and whether I can figure out what the artist was thinking at the time kind of becomes irrelevant for me because I, I get to overlay my own emotions and feelings and such onto the piece. And I like for viewers to have their own experience with a piece of art. For instance, I might name a painting, give it a title of something that's ambiguous so that I don't lead them on, but at the same time there are other paintings that I do perhaps lead, lead them on. One of my favorites, I mean this will end up on the website, but is you, you're, you had your open heart surgery last year. Yes. And you have the first piece that you painted yes. after that is, is going under. It which, is going under, yes. Which may have supplanted another painting in terms of being one of my favorite. <laughs> of, it's for sale, Keith. Your paintings. <laughs> <laughs> 50% off for... Ah, for, for me. For, for you guys who are subscribed to my newsletter and my blog, 50% ah. off. But, R regardless, so keep that in mind. Um, <laughs> That seems to be one where where you named it specifically to tie an emotion to it. You know, I did when you when I first saw it, and you said it was called Going Under. Though I thought of a different thing. I thought it looked like the view from Drowning. From Drowning, yeah, like you're you're going underwater. Oh, uh, it's very similar. Uh -huh, and you, I, know? you know, but that was like the first, and that has something to do with some other art that those colors remind me of mm -hmm. as, as well. But. You had your open heart surgery, and you come back to paint. Can you just talk to a little bit about that particular piece? It was hard to paint, first of all, 
because number one, I didn't have a lot of energy mm-hmm. to be painting, but yet I needed to needed to do it, and I wanted to explore mixing my own black. In other words, okay. not pulling a black out of a tube and just using it straight out of a tube. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to experience mixing my own black. So I mixed my own black. When the next layer of paint on top of a really, really dark layer, it's difficult to lighten it up. It related to my emotions at the time of, I could have been dead. And since that time, I've heard horror stories of other people, even a lot younger than me, who were in the same situation with the same type of surgery who didn't make it. And I've talked to a couple of my doctors about it, and you know they're devastated. I don't know if I answered your question oh. or what you wanted me to say, but... No, I'd, whatever you say is is what I'm after in terms of... Part of this is I really do want people to see some of these pieces because I think it makes more... If you, even just the manner in which you say that it was hard to paint, not just because you were weakened by the surgery, but just because of, of what it entailed. Emotionally. Emotionally. When you, when you see that painting, it makes sense and it speaks that. For me, there's a... a almost a trepidation or a you're not sure you want to explore what you're exploring there so much sort of a thing. And that would go for, I mean, that's me layering over the, the top of what you're doing. Right. Something else that you do that's really interesting to me is you experiment with a lot of different mediums. You were just telling me earlier about using cold wax and coffee grounds and such. What points you in the direction of these different mediums? Because I've noticed you, you've used several interesting ones. You've used cement with petroleum jelly and also stuff that doesn't make any sense to me. How do you discover the different methods and mediums that you use in order to create some of the textures that you do? I'm easily bored. I try new things just to expand my abilities mm-hmm. or expand my skills to to grow as an artist, to find my own voice as an artist. I like to experiment. I like to. I really like to try new things. But that doesn't mean that those new things will end up being in my art forever. As I've watched your art for God, how long have we known each other? Uh, got me S- six, seven years. Something like it is. that. There are things that that I see still across a good stretch of years with your art, and then you do these other things that that don't stick. And so you have styles that stay and styles that go. What? Uh, this is this is a terrible question. Are you ready for an awful question? Sure. Is there a particular piece of yours that you think really encapsulates what you feel is your style? Wow. Usually, okay, let me, let me answer that in a different way. Usually, my favorite painting is the one I painted last. That's just the way it is. But not necessarily, because some of those paintings, I think, I'll try something, it doesn't work, and I think, oh, I thought, I thought it worked at the time, and I'll look at it later, and I'll think, oh, that's a piece of crap. <laughs> so I put it in the crap pile, and the crap pile has grown to over 70 paintings. My intention is to paint over those mm-hmm. paintings and make something out of them. But anyway, I'm not really answering your question. What encapsulates me as an artist? What if you had to pick one one piece. If I had to pick one piece. Oh, dang. dang. Told you it was a terrible question. It's like asking a musician what his music sounds like. <laughs> Or what is his his favorite? Yeah, what, yeah. Can we come back to that? Yeah, I'll have to think about that. <laughs> the painting that's on my business card, Shiro. I thought that was my favorite painting. It's not, but it's not. No, it was for a minute. It was for was a minute. It? Yeah, and so that's why I it's guess, on the business card. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just reorganized all my paintings, which are in my garage. And I figure I probably got at least seven or eight hundred paintings in the garage. And those they're all variable sizes, right? You go you've I've I mean I have a piece of yours that's two inches by two inches. And they go up to well one of the light, latest paintings. I'll have to tell you this. Mm. 
One of my latest paintings is called Daddy Mammy. And Daddy Mammy refers to a time when I was in grade school. My mom would not buy me a musical instrument to learn to play. And it pissed me off. And she said, you got to learn the drums. So the, the band teacher had us playing on a board that was suspended between two chairs with, with our drumsticks. That's all we had to buy was drumsticks. And in order to learn to play a role, you go, Daddy, Mammy, Daddy, Mammy, Daddy, Mammy, Daddy, Mammy, Daddy, Mammy, <laughs> and speed it up. All right. I never mastered that, and I absolutely hated it. So I, I call this one painting Daddy, Mammy, and that painting is 49 by 40, so it's big. It's big. Yeah. Now, you named it Daddy Mammy. Is there is that an ambiguous title, or is there a reason for that particular well, title in this? It's ambiguous if you don't know the procedure of teaching somebody to play a drum roll. So, if I were to, to look at this painting, would it... No, you wouldn't tell... Yeah, that, and that's my, that's my question. It's ambiguous, it's yes. Ambiguous it's definitely sense, ambiguous. Yeah. What made you name it that, just to... Yeah, I'm to trying to do mind. a series to incorporate music, my music mm -hmm. into... Because I'm a classically trained singer... Uh, I have a BA in uh, vocal performance. So I'm trying to incorporate a music theme into my art to make a proposal for a, an ex exhibition. Oh, okay. And that brings me around to one of my favorite things you do is frequently you'll paint to music, and that influences what you're doing. Talk about that a little bit. As you're a classically trained musician, you're a singer, you have an appreciation for music, you have an appreciation for music that might be slightly outside, and you, as, you bring up, as you bring up jazz and such, <laughs> stuff that's not like mainstream, super easy listening, top 40, whatever it might be. Oh, I don't like super easy listening. That's, that and, doesn't and that's motivate me. No. When did you start painting to music? Has it been the whole time? And then I do want you to talk about your favorite music to paint to, because I love listening to you talk about that particular band. <laughs> I cannot recall when I started painting to music, but I, I would say it's always been. Mm. But my taste in music has changed over mm. the years. Uh, my son and I, my youngest son and I share, share a love of music. He's, al he's also a musician, and he, we're always sharing groups. When I paint and listen to music, I like to listen to instrumental. I don't want to listen to anything with lyrics because I don't want to be distracted by the lyrics, even though the instrumental can distract me. And as you know, one of my favorite groups is Moon Hooch. I love Moon Hooch. <laughs> and the best part is there's, there's two saxes, tenor sax, berry sax, and a trap set. And the guys have been very creative in making... What do I want to call it? I don't even know what I want to call it, but they make this huge tube, maybe four feet to six feet, that they can stick in the bell of a saxophone and increases the depth of the tone. And then they're just honking, and you can really get turned on and just take a, a, a paintbrush or a knife and, and just slap on the paint and really make it very creative, very... Interesting, very textural, that goes along with the music. In fact, I've painted a painting called Moon Hooch. Oh, well, I'm going to have to link to Moon Hooch in this. I have a, a funny story. It probably won't make it on the, on the podcast. but I don't know if you've watched uh, Moon Hooch on YouTube. I have. I have, too, as well. Everything they've ever produced. And, but they even play in a pasture, and all the cows come around and stand around and listen. <laughs> it's funny. It is funny. I'll have, to, I'll have to look that up. Yeah, and, and then one time they're playing in the middle of a highway. And I think, uh, for some reason, they're in their underwear. 
Well, that sounds that just sounds about right for yeah. And the two guys they hear sirens coming, and the two saxophones they leave, and they leave the guy with the trap set right in the middle of the road. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the plight of the drummer, though. Exactly, he can't pick up his drum, yeah, drums. Pick up and walk. So, circling back to your art at this juncture, how frequently are you creating new pieces? Are there any projects you're working on right now? Because I know recently you did like a seventy-five paintings in seventy-five days. I did 75 and 75 days, I did 60 and 60 days, mm-hmm. and I did 29 and 29 days. you have any, any projects like that coming up? What's going on going forward? I'm getting ready for a show in November and December, and I'm hoping I get into a, an annual show. And if I do, I'm going to produce a number of real small paintings, because they don't want to spend much money at this show. So that's in the back of my mind. Yeah. I did enjoy doing the... 60 paintings in 60 days. I enjoyed mm-hmm. all those. It kept me motivated. And for the 60 paintings in 60 days, I did it all on paper instead of on canvas. Instead of on canvas. Yeah. And I, I, I would charge progressively. I'd start off with one painting for a dollar, and the next day it's $2 and so on, until I got up to 60 bucks. In the back of my mind, I'd like to do something like that again, but I haven't formulated it yet. Mm. So. That takes some planning, it seems. Yeah. This show in November, December, is that the next show you're going to... Be taking part in, or unless I get into another show between, oh, okay. now, and between now and then. But that's a show you know that you're in, or is this a personal show? This is just your show, come November, December. It's just me. It's, it's a solo you. show. Where is that? Gonna it's be at the Marmalade Library in Northern okay. Salt Lake City. Uh, if you've never been there, you need to go. It's a fabulous library, very contemporary mm-hmm. building, and they have a, a great space for for hanging for, artwork. For hanging art. And there's been a couple of artist friends who have gone before me there, and I'm very much impressed with their work, so I hope they're impressed with mine mm-hmm. as well. So I'm also trying to paint for that show and have it have some consistency in the show. So I'm thinking I'm going to do something around the color blue. Every okay. painting will have some blue some in it. Some blue in it. Yeah. This particular episode, I can't remember where it's at on the schedule, but it's probably not going to get published till September or so, unless you want me to Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. And of course, I'll hawk your show. Uh, on Facebook, we may do. I may do a live demo at the at that library too, and talk about that real quick. Live painting—that's not something tons of artists. I mean, there's a lot of it out there. If you you know, but there's a lot of every kind of art out there. How did how did you get into doing the live demos or the live paintings? Because I know you did that for a while. Was that just again another one of those experiments, or is that something that you would do more often given more opportunities? I would do more often given more opportunities. I definitely would do it. I'm the type of person, you know, having been in the limelight most mm-hmm. of my life <laughs> because I started singing when I was like four or five, and having been in the limelight most of my life, I I have that need for some reason, kind of like you, Keith. Mm-hmm. I have that need, so you totally understand that. And it's just a way to showcase yourself, your art, mm. and, and what you're doing. I've done it where I've, I've had maybe two or three in an audience, and I've done it for more. <laughs> and I, I really love it, and I really love the interaction created between the audience and, and myself. I like when they ask questions, and I'm talking as I'm going and, and explaining what I'm doing. Well, and that, I'm, I'm assuming that in turn impacts the finished product in terms of the emotional impact of the of the painting once it's done almost as though everybody kind of got to participate in the creation yeah this one this one demo that i did or live painting that i did i i would ask the audience and there was only five in the audience i said okay what color shall i use now and they give me a color and i'd use it so it was kind of fun to do mm. that and, and there were five of them so i called the painting take five uh, i've seen that one yeah I, w- I would love to do it more i even considered doing it on the street in front of a 
art gallery on Gallery Stroll Night, mm-hmm. and then I never did follow up with it. So where can people find your art? I have a website, jerryhardestystudio.com. Mm-hmm. You can look there. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I don't know that I follow you on Instagram, which would just be wrong. I should. You should. There's this question I've been asking lately that uh, that I love, but everybody hates. So there's a series of two questions, and we'll, okay. we'll polish this off. Oh, we no, we got to get back to that one painting. Oh, we got to get back to the... Have you found... Did you land on the painting that yes. best represents Jerry? Well, yes. let's go there. Go there? Let's go there. I think my favorite painting that best represents me is called Flying Too Close to the Sun. Flying Too Close to the Sun was a demo painting to a live audience. Out in the Sun <laughs> by any means... It's red, it's yellow, it's been in more than one show. In fact, uh, it was featured in a show at Adobe headquarters. I, I think that that probably best represents me. It's very it's very intuitive. There's going to be a whole lot of pictures on the uh, page this go-round. So people can join your email list at jerryhardestystudio.com? Yes, I also have a blog, uh, jerrystudioscoop.com. And then I have a newsletter. Just recently I opened up this account with Fine Art America. Okay. In which you can purchase prints and other type of merchandise. So, so if somebody really loves one of your pieces but doesn't have the coin to right. to, to draw, buy an original, they can buy an original. They can purchase a print. Purchase a print. And I just opened that up several days ago, and I've already had close to eight hundred views. Nice. Well, we'll make sure that link's included too. Okay. Me, I'm kind of a snob. I just want to keep saving my money so I can buy originals. All right. So. Worst question in the world, and, okay. I, and I love it. What's the worst piece of advice that you've ever received? <laughs> There's more than one. <laughs> I think the worst piece of advice that I've ever received was when I left teaching. I was discouraged from leaving teaching. Oh, this is your security. You need to keep teaching. You need to keep doing this. I think that's one of the worst. Pe- I, if I had taken had it, had you taken it, but it was still it was a bad been. piece of advice. Yeah, yeah, it would have been a, the worst. You piece. Rec- you recognized it as bad advice at the time. Yes, I recognized yeah. it. I wanted out so bad that I I couldn't you know I could I couldn't stand it. Mm-hmm. And had I had I stayed, guess what? I probably would have been an alcoholic, maybe even a drug addict. <laughs> it would not. It would. It would not have ended the way. It that would it not has have at this ended point. well. No, yeah. it would not have not have ended well. Okay, so the flip side of that, what's the best piece of advice anybody's ever given you? What's the best piece? Hmm, another good question. See, that's worse than the first. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're the first person to say that. The best piece of advice? Can it be advice I gave myself? Yeah. Step outside your comfort zone, and I do that all the time. I challenge mm. myself all the time. I like challenges. Doing this has been a challenge. But, but a good challenge. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Is there anything else you want to say or share? Or Off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. But well, okay. I do appreciate you doing this. So we'll, uh, Choosing me to be one of your interviewees. Interviewees. Yeah. I appreciate you helping me to cut my teeth on this whole interview process. The interview ended somewhat abruptly on the recording because we started discussing something that... I did not want to put on the podcast. That was Jerry. You can find... His art, there are going to be links in the show notes, links on the website, so you can go and find Jerry's art, take a look at it, and buy a print even. That's all we've got for this episode. Coming up next week, I'm just going to announce a few small changes to the podcast. I've already recorded that episode, and I was super manic when I did it, so hopefully you get to hear Psychotic Keith happen. Also, if you would like to get any information from me, if you need any help with real estate, or if you just want to chat 
My email address is findinghomepodcast at gmail.com. That's findinghomepodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook at Finding Home Podcast, Instagram at Finding Home Podcast, or at Keith Callister. Either one of those will do on Facebook or Instagram. Also, you can call or text me, 801-326-0315, 801-326-0315. If you need anything at all, reach out, let me know. Uh, if you'd like to be on the show, I'm lining up some new interviews now. I'm really excited about them. If you'd like to come on and discuss something that interests you, please get in touch with me, and we'll make that happen. So until next time, we will see you later.